This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I've got my co-host here, Aaron Terrell. How are you doing, Aaron? Doing well this morning. Yourself? Good. Surviving the heat here and probably down there as well. Um, and our guest today is uh, um, Shannon Boger. Uh, Shannon, we've uh, we've met a few times here, but could you int- introduce yourself for our um, audience? Just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, I'm... Um... Uh, chartered investment manager in Ottawa. I've been in the financial business for 20 years. Um, that career path was um, sort of a means of carrying water and chop wood, put on a costume. Uh, I, I grew up in Vancouver and spent the 90s in the art scene. Um, in Vancouver, I studied uh, creative writing at the University of British Columbia, which was uh, a portfolio program at the time, only took a few students in every year. I think it was probably 18 in my cohort. Um, and surrounded by uh, other artists in Vancouver, um, playwrights and musicians and um, theater people and personalities and, uh, you know, like rubbing shoulders with people like Michael Buble before he, he launched into his, his fame and, and, and folks like that. Um, and um, I've always had a very deep interest in um, psychology. And because of my upbringing, which was in a very orthodox uh, Christian home, very uh, rigid, um, I, I became very curious about philosophy, psychology. Uh, I have a deep interest in classical mythology and global storytelling, sacred stories. And I've studied the, um, uh, let's say the wisdom traditions of the world over the last 30 years. I spent a lot of time on people like Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung um, and I would, I would say I've got my 10,000 hours in that department, just like I have that in my financial career. Um, and a big interest is uh, in, in development, um, how we develop, how we grow, how we heal. Um, what are the aspirational um, uh, goals of humanity? What are the big questions that we can ask? And... Uh, a couple of years ago, I took a, a year of sabbatical and I, and I wrote down some of those meditations into what looks like a book. Um, and uh, it was an exploration of uh, sacred storytelling uh, in structure because I'd spent time with an indigenous traditional storyteller, carver and painter who uh, very much inspired me in those years in the 90s. Um, and, you know, the biggest question that a person can ask, I believe, if we engage in any of these patterns of development uh, from any of the major traditions or even even ancient traditions, is a a rite of passage question that is, who am I? Um, And I was, I guess, jumped into this world of uh, gender ideology and gender identity and how it's impacting our society several years ago because a family member was uh, has been affected by this and then i care for them very very much and um and unfortunately our relationship uh has collapsed 
um, because of it, like many other parents, I think thousands of other parents um, who have questioned this, my, my uh, sin in that case was to ask about the side effects of testosterone. Um, and that ended our relationship. Um, uh, so I spent the last 15 months um, very much doing a deep dive into what all this means and asking some of those big questions. Um, and kind of from my background and my view on, on, those, on the sacredness of the kinds of questions we can ask as human beings, um, the question of what's my gender has never existed. Um, who am I is very different from what am I. And um, we have this need, it's like a religious socket or spiritual socket in our lives um, that has to do with sorting meaning out. And um, unfortunately, uh, so many people, I believe, have plugged into this question, what's my gender, instead of the bigger question is like, what's my soul? Who am, like, what's my true spiritual nature? Uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not a joiner. I don't belong to any religion or practice any specific religious tradition, although I practice yoga and meditation for a long time, um, uh, just as a physical and sort of meditative discipline. Uh, we, yeah, well, a lot of people talk about the meaning crisis and I think we're in it mm -hmm. and this is a symptom of it. Yeah. So you came to the issue through, through your personal life, but it's intersected with your professional life in some interesting ways. And you wrote a, an article for your Substack recently that I thought was spot on and, and a perspective I hadn't heard before. So you brought in concepts from the start, stock market bubble and comparing that to what you're seeing um, with trans ideology and how that's playing out societally. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit of what you said in that article? Sure. I think it, it's a sociological phenomenon. Um, a stock market bubble um, hits us or the bursting of a bubble hits us every seven to 10 years. Um, we had the technology bubble that burst at the end of the 20th century, the turn of the century, when um, you know, the internet was just being born. Uh, we had companies in Canada like Nortel Networks and JDS Uniphase. Uh, Silicon Valley was exploding at the same time in the US. In Ottawa, we were called Silicon Valley North. We had some of the, some of the greatest minds and technology here. Um, and, and a lot of back and forth between, uh, between Silicon Valley. People got very excited about the potential of the internet and were willing to pay anything for shares in companies because this was supposed to be the future. Unfortunately, they got, uh, they got there about 15 years too early and a lot of these companies ended up being worthless. Uh, and we had the, the collapse and the NASDAQ, that's the index that measures the value of technology shares uh, collapsed by 75% at the time. And then in, a, in our more recent memories, the uh, US housing crisis and the global financial crisis where uh, free money, like low interest rates made money very accessible for home buyers. Lenders got in on the action as interest rates went down, mortgage payment amounts went down and the value of homes went up commensurate with it. And so we saw this big spike in the US, um, uh, predatory lenders just giving out, um, they, give, they call them liar loans or ninja loans. Ninja stands for no income, no job. Um, people were just able to say, you know, my uncle wrote me a thing that says I work for him full time and make you know $80,000 a year on a piece of paper. And lenders were handing out these super cheap mortgages, but they had teaser rates on them. 
And those teaser rates are a bit like the department store credit card where you go, don't pay for nine months. And if you if you wait nine months in a day, they charge you 28% interest and they really hammer you with penalties retroactive. So a lot of these mortgages were set up this way. People were making money hand over fist. Uh, houses were going up in value, thought the party would never end. On, on New York uh, Stock Exchange, they were repackaging these bad mortgages into, into giant buckets um, and, and, and stripping out them in various layers of income and equity and selling them off to global investors as, as AAA credit. And it turns out they weren't. And so it, it ground the entire um, uh, global cash flow liquidity to a halt. Uh, I happen to be staying in Markham right now. My brother-in-law is a senior vice president with one of the big Canadian banks. His job at the time was global counterparty risk. He was the vice president of analyzing other banks' balance sheets in the middle of the financial crisis. He has a lot less hair now. Um, and said, you know, I've heard him say a few times that we were within like 20 minutes of complete global economic uh, disaster, like the end of the economy. Um, so in these situations, people get greedy and they look at the graph and the graph is going up and they think, wow, in the, that graph is going to keep going up forever. So I better buy now because it's going to go up even higher. And when people buy in, the law of supply and demand says, okay, well, now it's become more scarce. So the price goes up even more and then more people get attracted to it. And they, they pay even more. And so it's this uh, doubling down or doubling up. Um, of a sentiment that, that this party's never going to end. And then one day the lights come on and every, uh, uh, Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. Um, the reality sets in and, and then these economic collapses happen. And while those things are happening, there is no voice anywhere other than someone who's sort of put up as this you know, radical contrarian who's going to say, that cannabis stocks shouldn't be worth, you know, $100 each. They're only worth three. Uh, no one's going to listen. And, and in the money world, they ridicule those people and they marginalize them and they don't get jobs or they get shuffled to, you know, some, some office in the basement somewhere and, and, and they don't get to participate uh, for being critical. Um, it's a little less um, abusive than what we're seeing in the world where we've seen the number of trans identified, especially girls, spiking over the last seven years, really since 2015 or so. That spike has just been, you know, we get numbers uh, in my hometown of Ottawa, our hospital CHEO is up 2000% since 2014, uh, where approximately eight to 10 people were, you know, children were presenting a year with gender dysphoria. It's now in the range of 250. Um, so that's, you know, 20, 25x and the Tavistock, as we know, over various periods, you know, 4,400% or 44x, and, and we're like we're seeing everywhere. Um, and and people get into these kind of hysterias and they think this is the absolute way that things are, and people, more people pile in and, and more clinics open, and um, you know, there's more emphasis on this uh, as a as a reality. Uh, there's more uh, more people joining that. Uh, culture um, and and then it swings out of out of hand uh, we see these things we can see them through history 
So I was recently really lucky. I can't believe how lucky um, to, to participate in a small group meeting with Nicholas Christakis from Yale, who's probably the world's leading expert on social contagion. And um, I, I've read his books several times um, where he talks about phenomena of mass psychogenic illness, where groups of people get into hysterias and, um, and it just takes over and it, it creates chaos. And we could think of major um, really dysfunctional and, and devastating political ideologies in, in history as these types of mass psychogenic illnesses. Um, and there's a book that's just coming out right now uh, his name is momentarily escaping me. Um, uh, Matthias Desmet, uh, who's been talking about uh, mass formation or mass formation psychosis. And he's been researching that for a number of years. He's doing some of the podcasts now. It all kind of fits into the same pattern with slightly different language that we talk about. And of course, um... You, you've both probably read Jack Turbin's latest uh, oh. <laughs> disaster, where he's uh, he's contesting the idea that there's been a sex ratio um, flip, even though every major gender pediatric gender clinic in the West, um, you know, BC Children's Hospital, um, so Canadian hospitals, uh, UK hospitals, as you said, I mean, they've all released these graphs showing not only the major exponential growth since 2015, but also that very dramatic um, sex ratio flip where I think BC Children's Hospital in 2019 reported that about 75% of the young patients that they were seeing were biologically female. So mm -hmm. th that's not really contested. That sex ratio flip is well-documented um, in both peer-reviewed journal articles, as well as just reports that, that clinics have released um, and so Turbin released this this study from surveys. He only he only looked at two years pa uh, after that period where that exponential growth started. So he wasn't comparing numbers from before that happened compared to now. He was looking at two years after that happened, and that survey didn't even collect reliable data about the biological sex of the participants. He just guessed. <laughs> so. <laughs> and that's part of the bubble phenomenon. Um, you know, uh, during the last financial crisis, um, Bernie Madoff was exposed. Was it the last one? Um, Ponzi schemes and fraudsters and, uh, and sociopaths taking advantage of the system. We, we saw uh, before the financial crisis um, and after the tech bubble, uh, an extreme deregulation in the financial markets. Uh, in the U.S. So a lot of these big companies like Goldman Sachs were lobbying the government, we need to get rid of these legislation because they're preventing us from making profits. And um, in Canada, we were about to do the same thing when we invected, uh, elected the Harper government. Stephen Harper was campaigning on deregulating the Canadian banks, the same as the U.S. style to you know, make us more globally competitive. Uh, fortunately, he didn't act in time. And then he tooted his horn that, oh, we're the best financial, most safest financial country in the world because we're properly regulated and all these things. Um, the the uh, people pushing boundaries in those environments um, can do so um, with impunity when everyone's in a hysteria, um, when everyone's possessed by greed or what and I think we're right now we're possessed by um, sort of moral righteousness um, that's really tied closely with the, the phenomena of the, of the explosion of trans because 
you know, as you know, anyone who speaks about this uh, can really be uh, targeted. Um, in some cases, careers destroyed, investigated, losing jobs. Uh, um, it, it, it's uh, it's very brutal the way people are responding with this sort of emotional possession um, of righteousness that came that they're doing the right thing uh, when really silencing the conversation about this is doing a tremendous amount of harm. My yeah, I'm I'm curious about what's the difference between there's obviously bad actors and people who are you know, motivated by greed and taking advantage of the situation for their own benefit. Um, we could say that, you know, Turbin among them and, and many others, but I, to me, it seems like the, the majority of influential people in this, they, they're probably acting out of what they believe to be yeah. the, the best thing. Like they're, they're being altruistic from their perspective um, is the kind of the, the, the fascinating thing to, 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 to witness. Mm-hmm. Certainly not unique. In, in history. Uh, and in fact, a lot of human atrocity has been committed under exactly those conditions. Um, people thinking that they're doing the right thing and then justifying the atrocities with, with moral, a sense of moral righteousness. Like this must be done for the good of, you know, the greater society or the, even in the case of, of so many kids who are being medicalized for the good of the children. Um, and and the, well, these bubbles, you know, the formation that we see right now, when we compare the graph of the explosion in numbers of trans identification presentation to gender clinics of, of kids, um, looks exactly like some of the major spikes in uh, stock market bubbles. The graph just goes pretty much stratospheric, and then it comes down just as fast. I I hesitate to make predictions, uh, and you know we're starting to see some of the cascading um, stories that indicate that we might be at a point where this could be popping. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the closure of the Tavistock kids um, and, you know, following on the release of the interim cast report where they restricted um, sort of interventions at the Tavistock for, for kids under 18 and now ordering them closed by next year. Um, you know, all kinds of breaking news, like last week in the UK or 10 days ago in the UK, there was probably three or four major stories about uh, vindications of people who are pushing back against uh, ideological, uh, this kind of ideological fervor. Um, um, the, gosh, I can't remember the, the woman's name who fought for, against her law society. Um for believing believing in biological sex and having been uh, discriminated against and and losing her job her role there because of her statements about the the reality of, of biological sex mm-hmm. and the courts vindicated her so there's a lot of this stuff that's happening um, and and similar to when the um, the U.S. crisis um, began to unwind there was some news like this. Oh, there's a there's some problem over here, and and people who were trying to articulate the problem and, and communicate it to the regulators, to the public, to investors, to the ratings agencies like Standards and Poors, who just nobody wanted to listen, suddenly, uh, oh, you know, there's some head scratching going on, going oh, like, could this be a possibility? And that was May of '07, and by September of '07, only a couple of months, there was major government intervention. 
uh, and then it took another year for that to really process. Uh, so September of 07 to September of 08. 08, we saw that that moment where my brother-in-law describes it as like we were this close to the end of the world. And then it was digested out by about March of the following year. Um, so it, it created a really monumental emotional shift from greed, unbridled, to fear. Those are the two markets that really run um, the, uh, the investment world. Um, and, and, you know, humans have had a, um, like strictures against unbridled greed for a very long time. It's one of the sins, right? Um, and, uh, another one is, is, uh, pride. Um, and, and, and pride as it translates as a, as one of the cardinal, the class cardinal sins, the sins of the four directions is, uh, um, like narcissistic, belief and in, in an idea like I'm I'm so smart and I'm so right and I'm not going to let anybody else tell me anything um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna you know move through the world like that that's one of the other sins and that's kind of what I believe where the flavor or the the driver the sin that's behind some of this there are others uh, but that's what I wrote about in my piece on Substack one of the things that we're trying to do with the Gender Dysphoria Alliance is is clarify what is gender dysphoria to really mm -hmm. highlight the fact that what's happening right now, especially since that, you know, around that 2015 period and that huge spike, that really has nothing to do with gender dysphoria. But it, it the whole movement is, um, you know, under the guise of supporting those of us who had gender dysphoria when really it, it has nothing to do with gender dysphoria. And unfortunately, it's people with gender dysphoria that are going to um, experience the hardship of when this thing crashes. But but what's happened, this sort of mass formation that's happened, it's very ideological coupled with money. Yeah. And at the actually at the expense of uh, evidence-based treatment and understanding yeah. of gender dysphoria. Yeah. That's the parallel when the regulations get thrown out, right? Scientific process, you know, uh, the the uh, Hippocratic oath versus do no harm, uh, the uh, the gatekeeping boundaries that were you know demanded to be removed over the last few years as being transphobic, and all those those barriers to, that protected people uh, have been torn away, just like the deregulation in the U.S. banks over greed, and possibly that was in some way altruistically motivated. We don't really know. Um, possibly it was, there was more sort of selfish, um, you know, sort of large scale corporate uh, pharmaceutical. Um, I see the Denton's um, uh, report and recommendations has surfaced again online. It was, I was seeing it, you know, retweeted and moving around Twitter in the last week or so. That was the report uh, by the law firm Denton's that was paid for in part by the Thompson Reuters Foundation on how to um, basically insinuate um, gender self-identification and replace uh, biological sex identification with gender self-identification in institutions, governments, schools, laws, uh, and to do so under the radar, to hide it. Because uh, the, the perception or the kind of understanding was that it would create pushback if it went through normal legislative uh, uh, processes. So we've got a very insidious kind of deliberately under 
uh, or in the shadows kind of attempts to insinuate gender ideology into institutions all over the world. Um, Which is exactly what, um, you know, I, I mean, I haven't studied the conversion therapy legislation that's happened in other countries, but I've certainly read through the le legislation here in Canada. And that's exactly what that legislation is is doing it's mm -hmm. i mean how much conversion therapy were we actually seeing here in canada and there's no research on the impact of psychotherapy on gender dysphoria they're, they're conflating um conversion efforts that were have been done in the past for homosexuality and, and conflating that with what they're claiming is conversion efforts for gender dysphoria um but really the the whole point of that legislation was to um very through a backdoor um, hidden attempt to code queer theory into law and legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people are asking that question. What is gender dysphoria? Is it, um, uh, is it the same phenomena that's happening or is it something else? Um, a lot of people are asking the questions about social contagion um, in different language like mass hysteria or mass formation or psychogenic illness or uh, and uh, I've been asking for the, ever since I, this really hit me um, at the beginning of last summer, what, what can I do about this? Um, and I know that a lot of people are asking the same question. Like they're concerned about family members. They're concerned about what's happening in the school environments that they're teaching in. They're concerned about uh, sex-based rights that are being violated. There can, you know, there, there are many, many people who are aware of what's going on and, and incredible people doing work all over uh, on in their own ways with their own talents and abilities um, to push back on this. And so I was asking myself, by the way, you guys, I'm, I'm really glad to be chatting with you today. I, I've been following your work since, oh gosh, when I first tuned into you, you were you had a little website that was held together by bubble gum and duct tape. And then you just, <laughs> you kind of exploded. Uh, and, and the kind of, um, you know, the kind of honesty and vulnerability that you both shared along with your guests in the last year has just been really uh, inspiring to a lot of people. Uh, so I, last year, um, Pamela Buffoni, who lives not far from me from Ottawa, her and I had been chatting a little bit. And for viewers who don't know Pamela Buffoni, she uh, put a case before the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal because her six-year-old daughter, a little more than four years ago, was taught in grade one by a teacher that there was no such thing as boys and girls. Um, and, uh, and that boys could be girls and girls could be boys. And I believe that the teacher showed a couple of videos relative to this. It was a teaching opportunity or a teaching moment. And and Pamela's daughter was quite distressed. And so uh, she went to see the teacher and the teacher insisted that this was uh, appropriate to teach children. Like the social con uh, constructionism of gender that we make up boys and we make up girls. And the teacher um, was, you know, uh, immovable. And so Pamela went to the principal and the principal doubled down. And then the school board backed the principal that this is appropriate to teach six-year-olds. Um, so I was speaking with Pamela and, and, and asking and thinking about this lever. So I've got a pretty good professional network. I've made my career connecting people, uh, to other people. And sometimes uh, those people become my clients. Uh, but most of the time I'm facilitating it, um, 
connections and, you know, understanding goals of people and saying, you know, how can I help you achieve your goals? And then along the way, my business has been a collateral, a great collateral of that. Um, and I've developed a pretty good LinkedIn uh, network local to Ottawa for me, where I've connected with a lot of business owners and professionals and lawyers and accountants. And, um, and I, I said, you know, I think I'm going to start talking about this on LinkedIn. Uh, nobody, <laughs> it's not the appropriate platform for it, but I, I got to do something. And she said, well, maybe think about that a bit. But uh, Chris Elston, Billboard Chris is in town tomorrow. <laughs> maybe you should connect with him. So I met with uh, Chris on a Monday afternoon. He had been um, smeared in the media by uh, our, who, the person who's now our leading mayoral candidate for the Ottawa elections in October as hateful and bigoted and all the attacks that anyone who raises questions gets. And I, I talked to him and he said, well, I, I was going to leave tonight, but I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm being run out of town. So I'm going to, I'm going to stand on the public street across from a high school tomorrow. If you want to join me. And I said, yeah, of course. And then um, Chanel fall. I don't know if you guys know Chanel um, uh, who's also in Ottawa and um uh, I'm hoping she'll run as trustee along with me on a slate to try and you know, take the school board uh, back from the brink of, of this. Um, she joined us. Chris was assaulted within about five minutes of us taking out the signs and standing on the corner. The car slammed on its brakes and the guy got out and started pushing him around and you know, yelling just uh, bizarre accusations about us violating his rights by being on a public street and exercising freedom of expression. And then um, the, the next day between the OCDSB sending a letter to everybody in the school district, all parents and faculty about hate and bigotry and no room for this. And uh, uh, Catherine McKinney, who, who's running for mayor, uh, getting on media and saying the same thing. They whipped up the Rainbow Carlton Coalition, which is the two university activist groups. Um, and we were mobbed by about 300 people. Um, Chris was, again, he was shoved around and, and uh, you know, prodded and spray painted and had liquid poured on him. And uh, the police sort of looked on while his car was vandalized. And I walked away from that completely stunned. Like, what, what? Like this is this is way bigger and way scarier than I thought, and all these people were calling us bullies. They're calling us the angry ones. They're telling us that we're wishing violence and you know death on trans people. And and you know there are so many people with with good hearts who are trying to raise awareness of this. Gender dysphoria is. Uh, you know, from what I'm understanding is like, it's a very difficult experience. And I've heard you guys talk about it. Um, and, and it's not to be minimized at all. And, and we, we need appropriate pathways, evidence-based to help people. Um, so after that, I, I, in my networking uh, exercises, I met a woman I'd known for some time, but she is the um, president of a leading artificial intelligence machine learning company. And there's, there's a few really interesting ones in Canada. Um, she has had concerns herself about what she's seeing with friends of her children and experienced some of the really aggressive pushback from one of her kids about getting someone's pronouns right or wrong and, you know, being phobic and all of that stuff. And she kind of said, well, like, 
I'm worried about this. Why don't I run a query and see what's happened? So she deployed this machine learning tool um, and the tool does um, uh, things like uh, market research and behavioral decision-making analysis from publicly available data on the internet, um, Twitter, uh, Reddit, uh, various other text-based platforms. And they become really good because they can get big sample sizes of the population in determining uh, public opinion, way better than traditional polling methods. And, and what we saw in 2016 and, and in the 2020 elections is our traditional polling methods of phone calling are failing. And so some of these technological tools that, that involve uh, learning algorithms, artificial intelligence, uh, start to help to map some of how these decisions get made. And she was able to say, well, we got kind of a, uh, an aggregate uh, and identified about 75,000 conversations happening about this in Canada. And it spiked after this event because of what happened to you guys and the impact on the media and the social media conversations that happened. So, you know, uh, uh, Chris Elston, Billboard Chris, his goal is to simulate conversation. So we were able to get data to say, you're doing it, it's working. Um, and we were able to get data that said, the overwhelming, well, overwhelming, maybe a stretch of a word, but more than 60% of the general public was against um, puberty blockers and, and these types of medical interventions on kids. Uh, whereas the activists would like us to believe that, you know, critics are in the minority. Most people aren't really on board with this. So that began a conversation and uh, Pamela through Genspec and, and through um, uh, some of her connections uh, said, well, you know, would you like me to, to introduce you to Lisa? And so I uh, began a conversation with Lisa Littman. Um, I, we invited uh, Lisa Marciano, who's a Jungian analyst, to be part of our advisory group. She published in 2016 about to uh, social contagion and Quillette. Uh, had some she conversations. Was one of the early, she was one of the early people raising a sounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, uh, Jane Wheeler from Rethink Identity Medi Medicine Ethics. Uh, just, you know, she's incredible. Um, Helena joined our, our advisory group. Uh, Helena Kirshner, uh, who's very well-known detransitioner. Um, and some others who I can't name because of their current positions, but we have a cognitive scientist who's advising us. So we've got uh, Littman Research Foundation and... and um, we're preparing to launch, uh, to fund and launch a formal medium term um, artificial intelligence mapping of what's happening online and what's been happening since as far back as 2012. So this tool, because data on the internet never goes away, um, our first stage is going to be just to go out and, and identify a large sample group and um, people who follow this may, may know that Lisa Lippmann has faced a lot of criticism. One of the criticisms is a sampling method that's, that's sort of part of the nature of work that she's doing. She's doing uh, qualitative analysis um, with, with relatively small groups of people to understand trends and patterns. Um, you know, the ROGD uh, label has been misconstrued many times as a diagnosis, which it's not, it's a descriptive term. And she's faced all kinds of criticism. But 
it looks like we'll be able to put together independent uh, peer reviewable data sets with sample populations of in the tens of thousands of people. And we'll be able to go back in time um, with the data and research to understand how this trend has emerged, what some of the outside influences have been. Uh, for example, I am Jazz, um, because, you know, reality TV in 2015, Caitlyn Jenner, uh, and you know, there's been a, a lot of public awareness rising as this has been happening. And I, I've likened this, so I've traveled a lot in my life. Um, and I, I draw a distinction. I learned this from someone I met tree planting in Northern BC when I was in university, who said the difference between a traveler and a tourist is the traveler goes to see what's there while the tourist goes to see what they want to see. And so we are, we're going to deploy this algorithm as a traveler into these spaces, uh, Twitter, Tumblr, and Reddit. And we're going to be able to identify these unique independent um, um, data points or, or I guess people uh, and strip all of the identifiers away. So for ethical reasons, we never want to have uh, uh, any identifiers in this kind of research. We want, to, we want to understand what's happening in aggregate. And the machine learning has the ability to find independent inputs by the tens of thousands and then to identify patterns, um, patterns of decision-making, patterns of influence, patterns of persuasion, um, new um, memes is a funny word because we think of memes as like a little cutter on Facebook that's got a funny expression, but Richard Dawkins uh, coined the term memes or memetics to represent like a unit of culture, a discrete unit. So we'll be able to see these discrete sort of subcultures on the internet, how they interact, how people might move from outside one culture and be drawn into uh, it or how they might exit it. So when I translate that into simple language, um, we will be able to see patterns of how people make decisions to change the pronouns. Are, are there people influencing them? Uh, are there sort of social currencies associated with it? All of this is speculation, right? Like we, I don't know. Um, we have a sense of a map before we go traveling, but we, we don't know what we're gonna see when we get there. And we may be able to identify patterns of people deciding to detransition and what that looks like. And to see influences like advertising or uh, influencer marketing that's happening. Uh, there was, I just thought it was terrifying. A few days ago on Twitter, someone screenshotted on Twitter, um, a group of people offering to basically sell their extra hormones. Um, whether testosterone or estradiol to people who couldn't get it or needed to get it, you know, quietly or whatever, and, and basically practicing medicine without a license. Um, this is a big interest for Jane Wheeler and Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, who's looking at, at um, kind of dark persuasion and, and efforts to get behind restrictions on marketing of medical practices online, things like that. Yeah, there've been so a lot of web pop-ups of um, showing people how to get hormones without a prescription, ordering it online. It's it's yeah. horrifying. I mean, it's yeah. it, 
they don't want they don't want gatekeeping as far as you know going to see a physician and and now they want to even eliminate the physician might as well just yeah. put hormones in vending machines and hand them out like candy yeah so our, our um we may be able to see those things and one of the biggest things that because i've got an incredible board of of advisors working together on this you know the scientists want to have a really clear question formulated and it's hard for us to kind of grapple with, well, we're just going to let this machine run or this process run for six or eight weeks to get the map. Uh, and there's going to be data sets and reports we're going to be able to get out of this. Um, these are peer reviewable um, quality uh, and, and they've been vetted and uh, published the, the processes and the mathematics that have been published so we can, we can count on the data that we um, get out of this. And then we'll be able to hone our questions in what's happening over here, uh, what's happening over here. And with our advisory group, be able to prioritize the kind of questions that we want to ask. Like, like I asked myself, what's the biggest lever I could possibly pull to have an impact on what's happening? We'll be able to collaborate together and say, what's the biggest question that we want to ask? This project right here could be that that lever, honestly. Um, once once that data is available, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have spent um, like the last five years, I want to say, just in different trans forums and kind of educating myself, almost like an, an anthropologist, of you know what's changed, what's going on, what people are thinking, and it's like, oh, this has so many likes. So like this this post is absolutely confounding to me, but you know, five thousand people have liked it. It's like obviously it's it. You know, people believe this and, and, you know, relate with this. And so I've just been like doing that kind of just as an individual and just kind of like in my mind, mm -hmm. uh, kind of figuring out the patterns and whatnot. But this is like going to do that, like, like actually usable and large scale and yeah, at, translatable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And like, uh, like you, a lot of uh, testimonials, like you guys have had Helena on your show, mm -hmm. um, you know, her testimony of her experience on, uh, on Tumblr and how she kind of incrementally went down that pathway. Um, uh, you know, we're, we have those anecdotally. And so we'll be able to, um, you know, affirm to the degree that, that these are real experiences in a peer reviewable large data set that um, uh, will, will help us talk about this better. Talk about it with legislators, talk about it with therapists, talk about it with parents, talk about it with teachers. Um, and, you know, my, if, I, if this could be a tiny part of popping this bubble, uh, that might be uh, one of the most important things I ever do. Yeah, I think it'll be a big part. Go on. Yeah. We're in the phase right now of, um, of fundraising. So I've committed uh, $5,000 to the project, the total cost, the Canadian, the total cost is going to be about 40,000 American. We have some other um, contributors who, uh, who are uh, connected with the project who are contributing as well. Um, but I'm, I'm starting, um, I'm submitting a piece to Pitt, Parents with Inconvenient Truths about trans that describes this. And over the next uh, probably three or four weeks, I'm going to be hosting some information sessions for people who are interested in supporting the project um, and uh, and getting this off the ground. Uh, the, the, you know, the what do they say? The 
your best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is now. Um, so we, we're hoping to get this and maybe we'll get initial results if we can get enough commitment. I'd like to see half uh, of the financial commitment in place before giving the green light to the firm, but they have the project all mapped out. It's basically like press the button, we're going to go. Um, and, uh, and, and really light this up and, and then bring that to the, the public and global conversation in the next few months. If people want to contribute uh, financially to the project, how can they do that? Uh, at this point, reach out to me. Um, and we have pathways in the States, um, depending on the, uh, the, the level of contribution, where we may be able to get a tax deduction through a 501c3 uh, charitable um, uh, organization. Charitable status in Canada is a little more difficult. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I don't expect to be able to get a tax deduction for my contribution, um, but that's, that's just what it is. And I'm, I'm forming the framework right now for the nonprofit organization uh, to incorporate here in Canada and, and to be able to receive money from the charities in the States. And then as this project moves ahead, I'll apply and use some of my, um, you know, my professional experience in the financial world will apply for charitable status um, once we have a viable ongoing um, uh, sort of data collection mechanism. I really believe at a certain point the government's going to fund this because it's going to, uh, you know, just like when the government stepped in when uh, the financial crisis burst and they shored up corporations and they lent money to places and they funded things to create the solutions. I think that there will there come a time shortly where there's going to be enough public outcry uh, that the government is going to have to step in, and um, and maybe they'll fund us or maybe they'll deploy other resources or combinations of such to help mitigate the damage that we're seeing. Um, you know, 250 kids a year going through Chio. There's I, I read that there's a hundred gender clinics across Canada now in varying configurations. And, you know, we've got the major hospital, BC Children's Hospital and Sick Kids in Toronto that are doing this and um, that talking about backlogs and, uh, and, and, and yet we know that the high probability of, of uh, health implications for these kids long-term. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what data um, we're able to to get from the project. That's what we're so desperately needing right now. It's not more ideology and more politics. We need more. Let's get some objective, some objective uh, uh, information about what's happening, and and uh, yeah, and then talk about that openly. And you say that's the the results are going to be in within a, within a few months of launching. Is that what you're? Yeah, something between four and eight weeks. And we have to tune the inquiry a little bit to identify where our samples are. So, you know, it's not going to be we're identifying the whole internet as our as our sample population. Uh, it's going to be people who are who have some uh, indications or, or trigger some of the machine learning to say this is a person who is um, you know kind of in the in this uh, culture or or relative to this environment in this conversation. So that initial data run will be, you see, you described it as a map. So you'll get sort of some preliminary data and then you can fine tune it and, and ask specific questions based on that preliminary data. Yeah. 
I'll give you an example. Forgive me if I, because uh, I we talked briefly before our recording, so I'm not sure if I'm repeating myself again. But in the last federal Canadian election, what this tool found was that in the last 10 days or so before the election, um, the the conversation around abortion rights and um, uh, pro-choice um, versus legislation came up in Canada because of events that were taking place in Texas. So Texas, Bill Abbott and the Texas uh, legislature was pushing very restrictive abortion uh, legislation. And that spilled over into Canada. Now, none of the political candidates or parties had any conversation about abortion rights or restrictions. Uh, but the, the AI identified it as a significant conversation point that could tilt a significant number of voters if somebody played that card. Um, now, the, this firm, um, remember back in 2016, or actually it was 2017 by the time we figured this out, it was a company called Cambridge Analytica that was using micro-targeting uh, to influence voters in the US and they were hired by the Republicans. Um, and this was a very manipulative way of, of kind of figuring out how people make decisions and then nudging them with, um, with direct micro-targeted ads. Uh, the Cambridge Analytica system used, is similar to what this system is, uh, but in the kind of hacker online world, we, we distinguish between you know, good actors and bad actors, um, uh, white hats versus black hats. So this organization is very, um, uh, and I've known, I've known the, the CEO and the chief scientist for probably, I've known the CEO for at least 10 years. Um, they, are, they are very ethical in their use of data. And that's been part of our conversation. So they, they recognize the profound impact that technology like this can have and protect how it, how it can be used, which I appreciate a lot. What, one thing I keep wondering is, is what you, so you're, you obviously are very familiar with bubbles and, and the, 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 the bursting in the past when we talk about like financial bubbles and whatnot, um, the, the, the impact, well, like in the, in the housing crisis, that was obviously felt very, very far reaching into individual lives. But I think this is going to take a very different, it's going to look very different when the bubble bursts. Um, as far as um, you know, individual families, individual not, well, institutions, yeah. like all the backing, like in the it, things that were going on financially, that that happens, you know, offline behind closed doors. You know, these are individual financial decisions and um, you know um, uh, strategies that are. But this has all been so so completely public and individual, like people's health, you know, in, in family structures and like all these things. Yeah. Are, it's so visible. Um, do you have any have you, any thoughts on what that's going to look like? You know, this specific. Um, you know, I I think it's going. I, I think we're seeing that we're going to see the end of this within two to five years. Is my is my my estimation a very uneducated estimation? Um, but but I just can't stop thinking about what it's going to look like after the fact. Yeah, I think it's a question so many of us are asking: Is this going to end? How is it going to end? When is it going to end? If this follows the pattern of a bubble, a bubble bursting, it bursts very quickly. Um, 
know, the graph that went straight up ends up coming almost straight down. So, I mean, that's the case with Tavistock. Their graph went straight up. They're not doing, uh, they're not treating people anymore. And so the graph has gone straight down. Um, the, the financial bubble, when it burst, we're still feeling impacts of that. You know, that was 12 years, 14 years ago. Um, the economic impacts of that have had long-term consequences to um, the general public in the United States. The gap between the rich and the poor over the last decade has dramatically uh, widened. Um, people are suffering and frustrated. And then a lot of that came out during COVID with, um, you know, um, anxiety and, um, um, you know, resentment and uh, pushback against government and this anti-capitalist sentiment we're seeing an awful lot of. Um, I, as the gender bubble bursts, if that's the pattern that it follows, I don't think we're going to see an increased trust in institutions. Um, there's going to be an awful lot of questions. There's going to be uh, major inquiries, congressional inquiries in the United States. There's going to be um, royal commissions of inquiry here in Canada. We'll have similar undertakings and hopefully um, with more uh, strident structuring uh, to the um, inquiries into missing and murdered Indigenous women or the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that we uh, had in Canada in the last 10 years and the results of, of the inquiries into residential schools uh, and our treatment of Indigenous here in Canada. Um, that's the level of healing. That's the level of transparency that we're going to have to go through to make sense of this. And um, there are there are a lot of human casualties here. You know, a lot of people in the States, in the, in the financial bubble, they lost their homes, they lost everything. The companies that they worked for just stopped existing. You know, the places were gutted in terms of real estate. Places like Detroit, Las Vegas was hit really hard. Like many, many cities in the States were just devastated by the collapse of the real estate market. And we're going to see... Um, obviously in, in different flavors, but there's going to be questions within school systems and at all levels of government. And like, because, you know, we've heard a lot about systemic racism and systemic, right? This is the sort of woke-ness of, of, of systemic privilege, but we have, we have uh, basically a school to medicalization pipeline happening in Canada. Kids are being taught in grade one that there's no such thing as biological sex. And it's this is defended, right? And you can be a boy or you can be a girl. So at that level of psychological development, kids don't have the capacity to comprehend this. I mean, the question of who you are, and, and I, I, would, I would put it to viewers and, and maybe to you guys as well, like, I think we're all about the same age. I, I turned 50 not long ago. And... Um, I still don't have a full answer to that question. Like who I am is constantly evolving. Um, and I get to know myself better and better the older I get. I feel like I become more myself. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, we're going to be asking ourselves that question at everywhere these institutions have, have been part of the system. So the, the schools are someone in bc contacted me and he said what should i do my kid was exposed to this at their preschool in literature and they're about to go to kindergarten 
And so the preschool is part of this systemic problem. The schools in Soji in BC is part of the systemic problems. And then we have, you know, the, the, the internet is part of the systemic problem. We have it legislated as part of the problem. We have, you know, the human rights uh, um, sort of uh, capture of human rights legislation and term, inter interpretations of what human rights uh, are in this context. It's all like it's spread tentacles everywhere. Um, so how do we unwind that? How do we reconcile that? It's a bigger question. What's the biggest lever? For, for those of us on the left, because it's become such a such a polarized, divided, divisive issue that that tends to be split down party lines. And I think, you know, it tends to be left leaning people that are full on board with these ideologies. Yeah, partly that's a, a, a oppositional defiance to the right. Because we're just going to categorically uh, reject anything you say because because you're you and you're on the right. Um, and part of that is the virtue signaling um, and this sort of moral sense of superiority that we're doing the right thing, misguided, a lack of understanding of what uh, trans and what gender dysphoria is, um, the conflation of trans with uh, gay and lesbian um, or gender dysphoria with, with, with um, you, know, you know, who you're attracted to. Um, and and the, you know the, the rainbow industry, the pride industry, the ESG. I mean, from the investment world, ESG is toxic in a hundred different ways. But companies now fight for because they get ranked on these environmental, social, and uh, governance criteria um, on a real time basis, and that that has an impact on their stock value. So there's it's this perverse incentives in corporations like, you know, there's a bank in Canada, I'm not going to name it, but, you know, like forever progressing and the rainbows just wraps their building. And this is, this is the bank. So it's very hard um, when the, when the, these progressive ideas are cloaked in virtue and everywhere we turn to be the person who says, whoa, whoa, like, like we need to pump the brakes. And, and I come from the left. Uh, I voted liberal for 30 years. Um, very consistently, uh, I, you know, I have a strong belief in social institutions and, you know, uh, social support and, and giving people um, a hand up in life and helping, you know, uh, rather than individualism. Uh, but the left has just gone way left. And now I'm frequently called a you know, white supremacist and a bigot and a transphobe and a Nazi. And like, we've all been called it all at this point. <laughs> uh, so, Well, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking to us. I'm really excited for your project and I'm looking forward to, to seeing that when it's finally published. Me too. Uh, I hope it makes a difference. Uh, and if anyone would like any more information, we're going to know when we're going to give some information sessions. I'm going to try and invite some of our, our board into each of those meetings so that we have someone uh, uh, from the team represented in those conversations. And uh, we're putting together a white paper finalizing right now. So, you know, the piece that's going up in pit is general. And I've talked in generalities here, but there are, there are, we want to contextualize what we're doing with a good, rigorous scientific background. And that's not my, you know, I'm, I'm 
finance. That's the world that I live in. But the people who are coming from the science side really want to make sure that we're clear about um, what this is about and provide the proper context and the proper references and, you know, um, and, and, and then to seat this within um, good, the best possible scientific rigor that we can, that we can apply. I think it's going to have a yeah, inc massive and very, very useful uh, impact. So thank you very much for doing that. It's my duty. I just happen to be a guy who knows people who connect people, and, you know, um, that's what, could, oh, I was just gonna say that's what we all, yeah, we all we all we can do is what, whatever we can do, whatever our speciality is, whatever we can contribute. It's like contribute that. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely a welcome contribution. Yeah, well, thanks, Terrific. thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you again. Thank you guys, and uh, Aaron, uh, it's great seeing you again. Uh, I was gonna try and get out to BC again this fall. That's not gonna happen, but I got word my stepson's moving to Kelowna. Uh, so we have an excuse to get kind of in your neck of the woods again, maybe in the next year. It'd be great to catch up and, uh, That'll be great. and have a tea together again. And Aaron T, very nice to meet you. You as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>